Well, good evening, men. I want to welcome you especially to this particular session of Men of the Word. It is our 27th installment in this series called The Mercies of God, a study of the key components of our salvation. This has been a very tremendous study. It's been so personally rewarding for me in my own study of these doctrines, to study them afresh, to study them deeper than I have in the past. And it's also been so encouraging for me to interact with you and to hear the the new things you are learning as you go through this study together with me and think of all the implications these truths have to our lives. Well, in this final session, in this 27th installment, we come to the apex of God's redemptive activities, and it is the doctrine of resurrection. It is that component uh, which is the capstone of God's saving purpose in our lives. Well, with this doctrine, as I said, we come to the culmination of God's redemptive activity. The resurrection, the future resurrection of our bodies, if we should die before the appearing of our Lord, or the glorification of our bodies, if we are alive when he returns, is the Spirit's final application of all that the Father arranged in redemption and what the Son accomplished. And this is so well expressed by Romans chapter 8, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul writes of the Spirit's activity in our resurrection. He has been with us from the beginning. From the moment of regeneration, the Spirit has been at work applying the riches of Christ's atonement in our lives, beginning at that work of conversion with regeneration and justification and adoption and sealing, then throughout our Christian lives through the work of sanctification, his indwelling presence, his intercession on our behalf. And then he brings us to this culmination with resurrection. Romans 8 verse 11 says this, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Well, as to be expected, this crowning achievement of redemption is not without its critics. Those who oppose the gospel, those who reject the plan of redemption as has been revealed to us in God's word. They are many and they take various forms and they attack various components of this plan of redemption, whether it is the doctrine of regeneration or the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of sanctification. There are always those who stand against this work of redemption. And certainly when we talk about the doctrine of the resurrection, we find many opponents. And that's not just the case today, but that has been the case throughout the preaching of the gospel. We can look, for example, at Acts chapter 17 and Paul's address to the philosophers, the educated elite in the city of Athens. And as he is there on, on Mars Hill and addresses that, that esteemed group of, of educated philosophers, this is what the, the, the writer Luke records. Paul says this as he 
brings his evangelistic preaching to this audience to a climax. He says this, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Luke goes on to record that at that moment, as soon as Paul referenced the doctrine of resurrection, particularly with reference to Christ, you have this reaction on the part of these educated elite. Luke records that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them began to sneer. As I said, this is not limited to the the lifetime of the Apostle Paul. This sneering, this scorning at the doctrine of the resurrection is something that has carried on throughout the history of the preaching of the gospel. And there are various reasons why men are so opposed to the doctrine of the resurrection and why they ridicule it with such fervor. Now, we could go in many different directions to identify the reasons for this, but one in particular deserves mention, and it is the philosophy of Platonic dualism. Platonic dualism. What is Platonic dualism? Platonic dualism is a worldview that was really popularized by the Greek philosopher Plato, who lived 428 to 347 B.C., And Plato taught that the things of the material realm are inherently inferior and imperfect in contrast to the things of the non-material realm. So understand this kind of dualism. The material world, anything that's physical or material, is inherently imperfect, is inherently inferior, and Then you have the other world, which is the non-material world, the spiritual realm, the realm of the abstract, and that realm is inherently superior. Therefore, with this kind of worldview, the, the problems of life are not traced to the soul. The problems of life are not traced to the immaterial world, but the problems of life are traced to the material body. It is the material world that is the source of all evil. It is the material world that represents all that is wrong in the world today. And so therefore, according to this kind of dualism, Platonic dualism, death brings liberation from the body. In referencing this heresy, John Murray described it this way. He said this in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He said this, one of the heresies which has afflicted the Christian church and has been successful in polluting the stream of Christian thought from the first century of our era to the present is the heresy of regarding matter, that is material substance, as the source of evil. Now we can Trace that in various strands. We know that the Sadducees themselves, the ruling elite among the people of Israel during the time of Jesus, the Sadducees rejected the resurrection. Matthew 22, verse 23, and Acts 23, verses 6 to 8, describe their detestation of the doctrine of the resurrection. 
When Paul was before Agrippa and preached the gospel to Agrippa, he got to the point of the resurrection and then asked Agrippa this question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? We know that in the early church, there was uh, an early heresy which rejected the idea that God could have anything to do with the physical flesh. And so that began with the rejection of the incarnation of the Son of God. The Son of God could not possibly take on human flesh because, again, the material world is inherently inferior and evil. And so John addresses that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, when he writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now that was an issue that that John was dealing with among the churches at that time. There was this denial that the incarnation took place. And again, it arose from this, this presupposition that anything material, anything physical is inherently evil, and it's the source of all problems in life. Now, that kind of thinking has, has existed, again, throughout the course of church history and is even expressed often today. One Episcopalian bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong said this, and remember, this is, a, this is the elite of the, the class of, of Christianity among mainline denominations, and John Shelby Spong said this, I do not believe that the deceased body of Jesus was resuscitated physically on the third day and was restored to the life of this world as at least the later gospels assert. But I do believe that in him and through him, people found a way into that which is eternal. And so they portrayed him as breaking through and transcending the limits of death. End quote. Now, what Spong advocates here is a common view that is held in all kinds of academic Christian circles at the highest levels of both denominational and educational circles. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, you have doubts about this. And last year, perhaps you remember this, Pope Francis himself made the headlines when, when a friend of his interviewed him, and this friend is 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 an atheist but interviewed pope francis to get his perspective on various issues and in response to some of the questions that were offered by the interviewer this is what one of the statements that came through uh, from that interview stated and this is supposedly according to the interviewer these are the thoughts of pope francis the pope of the roman catholic church quote He, that is Jesus, was a man until he was placed in the tomb by the women who recomposed his body. That night, in the tomb, the man, Jesus, disappeared and came forth from the grotto in the semblance of a spirit that met the women and the apostles while still preserving the shadow of the person. And then he definitely disappeared, end quote. 
Now, after having reported these words, the Roman Catholic Church offered a non-denial denial. They simply stated that the interviewer had not quite captured the idea of Pope Francis, though he certainly did not come out with any kind of definitive rejection of uh, these words. It seems by all intents and purposes that he holds to some kind of spiritual resurrection of Jesus, not a physical, literal resurrection. This is common today, and it is at this point that we must end our series because this doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection, is the linchpin for our redemption. And it is the linchpin not only for our redemption in terms of our forgiveness of sins, our justification, but it is the linchpin for our future redemption. So important was this that the Apostle Paul stated it in these unequivocal terms. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 19, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So in light of that, we must look at this doctrine of the resurrection and consider it very carefully in terms of its place as the culmination of God's plan of redemption. As we do that, again, we begin by looking at key concepts that must be defined carefully in order to move further in this. And we're going to look at at, at three terms. Two of these we looked at last week in our introduction to this study. And these concepts are the concepts of glorification and the intermediate state. We'll redefine those again and briefly review those. And then we will look more specifically at the concept of resurrection, and look at how it is integral to the biblical gospel. Well, let's review our understanding of the term glorification. As I said, we looked at this last week, but let me redefine it once again because it is so important. John Murray provides this helpful definition of the term glorification. Quote, it is the complete and final redemption of the whole person When in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. When the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. Now, when we look at that definition, and Murray certainly is drawing from a wealth of texts in the New Testament that speak to this doctrine of glorification, we can come up with these key observations about this doctrine. Number one, glorification is the ultimate and crowning achievement of of redemption. Number two, glorification occurs in its formal sense at the coming or the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, Glorification conforms believers to the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. 
Number four, glorification involves the entire existence of the believer. It includes both body and soul, both the material and the immaterial essence of man that is necessary for his full existence. Number five, glorification is also accomplished unilaterally, or we could say monergistically. It is accomplished by God for all those whom he chose from before the foundation of the world to be the recipients of his unmerited grace and glory. And finally, we could say this, when we talk about glorification, we define it as that act which definitively ends all moral and material defects and brings about a state of eternal perfection, both morally and materially. Now, where do we get that? We could, we could look at numerous texts. I would encourage you to go back to last week's session to, to look at those texts. But one text in particular deserves mention, and that's Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. And here we find many of those components, which I just mentioned, listed for us or described for us here in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. Here the Apostle Paul says this, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You see that in this golden chain of redemption, From the beginning to the end, from before time began to eternity future, there is this unbreakable linkage that those who began the process in God's foreknowledge end the process in the likeness of the Son of God himself. That is the doctrine of glorification. That is what all of us are striving for. That's what all of us are hoping for with a confidence that is certain. Number two, we looked at this last week as well, the the concept of the intermediate state, the concept of the intermediate state. So when we define the doctrine of glorification as involving both body and soul, it immediately raises the question, what about those who die before they receive their glorified bodies? What about those who die before the appearing of the Lord? What Matthew Barrett says in response to that question is helpful. He says this, quote, When we breathe our last, it is not the case that we cease to exist or that our soul goes to sleep until the time of our bodily resurrection. Rather, Our soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven, end quote. Now, what Matthew Barrett is referring to there is this period of time between the death of a believer in Christ and the appearing of the Lord to gather his church to him, to be with him forever, where all believers in the church age will receive their glorified bodies. These can be two different times. Those who die before the appearance, before the coming of the Lord, their bodies will lie in the grave. They will decompose. 
but their souls will go to be with the Lord. And that period of time as the soul is with the Lord, awaiting that future resurrection, that period of time is called the intermediate state. The Apostle Paul refers to this conscious existence in soul or by soul with Christ in heaven in numerous places, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 is helpful here. Here the Apostle Paul, after he's talked about the importance of a body in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5, then transitions to make these comments in verses 6 to 8. He says this, quote, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What Paul is describing here is his own desire and the desire of all true believers that even if they should die before the appearing of the Lord, before they would receive their glorified bodies, this desire is to go to be at home with the Lord. We can summarize this state, uh, this intermediate state as follows. It is a state of conscious existence. As Paul describes it, it means to be at home with Jesus Christ in heaven. It is also a state of perfect sanctification. The soul's striving against sin has ceased once and for all, and perfect holiness, perfect sanctification is experienced there at this, the, the, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also a state of incomplete existence. Incomplete, not in a moral sense, but incomplete in the sense that the soul exists apart from the body in a state that is not the ultimate state designed for the soul. It is a state of anticipation. As the soul anticipates that day when it will once again be clothed with a body, particularly a body in the likeness of Jesus Christ's own glorified body. That describes what we call the intermediate state. Now that said, we now move to this new concept that we will discuss for the rest of our time together. And that is the concept of the resurrection, the resurrection. Now it's important to note that the influence of Plato's dualism, this idea that the material world is bad, but the immaterial world is good, this influence of this kind of an idea, which we find in many places in Christianity today, this influence has led many Christians to assume that anything material is inherently imperfect, weak, and inferior. And therefore, for many, the soul's existence with Christ in heaven in that intermediate state is considered to be the very height of glory and nothing more is necessary. They believe that death is good because it finally liberates the soul once and for all from all the limitations and the imperfections of the material world. 
Now, certainly, the Christian does look on death as that thing that ushers him into perfection. And so we do not fear death as the non-believing world does, but this kind of an idea has led many Christians to believe that the only thing that awaits them, the only necessary thing, and the thing for which they wait for most is to dwell as a disembodied soul in the presence of God. But this kind of an idea is not the teaching of Scripture. There is something more beyond the intermediate state, something which is the capstone of God's redemptive plan and something which we dare not ignore or forget in our understanding of God's plan of salvation. Platonic dualism, that material world versus the immaterial world, that kind of dualism is antithetical to scripture and it 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 negatively influences our view of the finality of God's redemptive work why is it antithetical to scripture i can think of several reasons number 1 this dualism is antithetical to god's word because god in the beginning intentionally created the material realm and declared it to be very good Look at first or look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 or 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 4 what God creates his intentional creation of the material realm was very very good the problem of sin is ultimately and this is number 2 the problem of sin is ultimately not traced to the material world but it's traced to the soul It's traced to the the mission control center of the human being. You could look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Well, we find it's the soul that sins. And it is the sin of the soul that resulted in the curse on the material world, not vice versa. Number three, Platonic dualism is antithetical to scripture because God's plan of redemption encompasses not only the redemption of the immaterial realm, but the redemption of the material realm as well. Now, this mainly belongs in the in the category of eschatology or study of the end times. But we read in scripture a very clear, a very clear design for God's purposes for this world and a purpose for a new world to come, and they are material in nature. We could look at Colossians 1, verses 16 and verses 19 to 20, or Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, or Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and we see God's plan for this material realm. Number four, platonic dualism is antithetical to Scripture because it denies the necessity of the doctrine of resurrection. And God's view of the material world is particularly vividly illustrated in this doctrine of resurrection. So with that said, how do we define resurrection? What is the resurrection? Wayne Grudem provides a very simple, straightforward definition, and it's not one that is hard for us to understand. Wayne Grudem says this, resurrection is, quote, arising from the dead into a new kind of life that is not subject to sickness, aging, deterioration, or death, end quote. 
It is a rising from the dead of the material body to a newness of life that is not subject to the curse. It's not subject to imperfections. It is not subject to all the imperfections that we see in the material world around us caused by the presence of sin and the absence of perfection. This desire for resurrection is certainly not limited to the New Testament. In fact, we find it going back to the the the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and we see it, for example, mentioned by Job himself. In a very important text in Job 19, verses 25 to 26, we hear these words coming from Job's mouth. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Notice his focus there on the Redeemer. He knows that his Redeemer lives, and he continues and says this, And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, that is from my material existence, I shall see God. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 also expresses this Old Testament faith in a future bodily resurrection. Daniel 12 verse 2 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The prophet Daniel is looking to the future, and in just in one general statement, he is promising the future resurrection, and that not only will the righteous, will God's people be resurrected to everlasting life, not only will they shine forth with the brightness of the sun, but others, that is, those who are not God's people, those who have scorned God's plan of salvation, they too will be resurrected and in their resurrected form will experience everlasting disgrace, contempt, punishment. It's what we call hell. In the New Testament, Jesus says this about the resurrection. John 6 verses 39 to 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this, that whatever we have so far experienced in terms of redemption, And they are many riches that we have already experienced. But all these riches are but a foreshadowing, a foretaste, a down payment on the real deal that is to come. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, 
But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Philippians chapter 3, 20 to 21, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul says to the Colossians that if we have been raised up with Christ, we are to keep seeking the things above where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. We are to set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when he appears, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Your real identity is going to be revealed at that moment of future glorification. That moment when you will receive your glorified body. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, as he prays for the Thessalonians, as he looks forward to the future and says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. Thus, as MacArthur and Mayhew state, in the formal sense, glorification does not take place when a believer's soul enters the current intermediate heaven, but rather at the second coming of Christ. End quote. And, and again, we must recognize that, yes, the intermediate state will be that place of Glory as we behold in that beatific vision, the face of Jesus. As we behold that, all our sorrows will be washed away. And even in that incomplete state, we will enjoy glory. But that glory is not the fullness of our glorification. The fullness of our glorification, that formal glorification will take place only when we receive that physical body, that physical glorified body that God has prepared for us. John Murray says this, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And therefore, nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which the living God will lead his redeemed. End quote. Let me read that again. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And therefore, nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which the living God will lead his redeemed. And that is the wonderful hope that has been given to all who have believed in Jesus Christ. That this life is not the best life. Our best life is to come. And it is not a life that will just be enjoyed in that soulish sense, in that immaterial sense. But it will be utter perfection, perfection that includes both soul and body, both the material realm and the immaterial 
realm. Now, having said that, let's draw some essential characteristics of this doctrine of resurrection and see how this applies more closely to our lives. Let's look at these essential characteristics. Number one, number one, when we talk about the doctrine of our future resurrection, we must remember this bedrock truth. Number one, the historical resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of our redemption. The historical resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of our redemption. I've already mentioned this, but we have to come back to it and emphasize it once again. The literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fundamental of the Christian faith. Paul calls it in his own terminology. He calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, he calls it a matter of first importance. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is just as important to the Christian faith as his death on the cross. Jesus' resurrection from the dead in his body serves as the necessary affirmation of the efficacy of his atonement. And thus, to deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus is to negate the entire plan of redemption. Let me say that again, and let me be very definitive on this point. To deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus is to, de- is to negate the entire plan of redemption. You can't just remove this component from God's plan of redemption and still have a saving gospel. And certainly, we don't understand all of the intricacies of this doctrine. God hasn't revealed all the details of it. Nonetheless, to deny this doctrine, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, places us outside saving faith. A person cannot, on the one hand, claim to believe in Jesus Christ salvifically, while at the same time rejecting the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul puts it in his own words. Again, coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, and now we'll read verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There's no equivocation in Paul's language. He is as definitive as he can be. 
To deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is to undermine the entire plan of redemption. It is to leave us in our sins. It is to give us no hope whatsoever in this life. Our pastor, Pastor John, says it this way in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says this, quote, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation, end quote. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of redemption. Number two, a second essential quality here of this doctrine is this. Our union with the resurrected Jesus guarantees our own future bodily resurrection. Our union with the resurrected Jesus guarantees our own resurrection. Now, let's go back several months to reconsider the doctrine of union with Christ. And when we looked at that doctrine several months ago, we defined it this way. According to MacArthur and Mayhew, union with Christ is, quote, a basic dimension of the doctrine of salvation. By being identified, there's our key word, identity or association. By being identified with Christ in his atoning death, as well as in his resurrection power, believers are credited with his righteousness and share in his holiness. End quote. Our union with the resurrected Jesus guarantees our own resurrection. And seeing that Christ has become the first fruits of resurrection, he becomes the first of many to be raised from the dead. Consider how Paul uses this concept of union with Christ and ties it together with the doctrine of resurrection. Romans 6, verses 6 to 10. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. And because we have been spiritually associated to Christ or with Christ, we have been baptized into him. We have been immersed into him. It means that his resurrection guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Working off this precious truth. Charles Wesley in the hymn, Christ the Lord is risen today, reaches uh, his own climax in the fourth stanza of that beloved hymn that we often sing around Easter. 
And Charles Wesley puts it in these words as he reflects on the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union with him. Soar we now with Christ where Christ has led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Number three, a third important characteristic of this doctrine of resurrection is this. Jesus' resurrected body serves as the blueprint for ours. Jesus' resurrected body serves as the blueprint for ours. Now, it's important to note this, as I've already stated, the, the, the doctrine of resurrection is for us something entirely out of our current experience. It is entirely future for us. And therefore, as Sinclair Ferguson has stated, this doctrine, quote, takes us to the utter outer limits of Christian knowledge and leaves us like men standing on the shore, watching a boat disappear over the horizon into an experience at which we can only begin to guess. We have to be careful as we consider the doctrine of Resurrection, we have to be careful about speculation. We have to be careful about moving beyond what God has stated into the realm of our own guessing, into the realm of our own in- intuition. And there, at where our intuition begins, is where all kinds of errors and heresies begin. We must remain with the scriptural witness. And scripture does provide us with enough knowledge of the resurrection that we can base a a fairly good understanding of what this resurrection will mean for us. And because Jesus Christ is the first fruits, we can look at his resurrection body as described in the scriptures and see that that is the blueprint for what our future glorified bodies will look like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49 says this, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is of Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is Jesus. What Paul is saying there is that the first Adam came, that was the historical Adam of Genesis chapter two or chapter one, two, and three. That's the historical Adam, and we have been born as a descendant of Adam. And as a result, we bear the consequences of all of Adam's sin. But there is a second Adam, and his name is Jesus. And this second Adam, if if one is incorporated into that Adam, this second Adam bears the blueprints, the model for those who are in him. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul writes that Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And of course, that familiar text of the Apostle John's, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read this, that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. So what we can do is we can look at the resurrected body of Jesus and and we can look at some of those characteristics and realize that those characteristics are blueprints for the characteristics 
that our future glorified bodies will possess. Characteristics like these. We know that he appeared as a regular human being. After his resurrection, he appeared as a regular human being, so much so that the, that, that the disciples on the road to Emmaus initially thought he was just another regular traveler. We also hear from Jesus' own mouth that he says, See my hands and my feet? You can touch me and see? He goes on to say that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Jesus in his resurrection state possessed actual flesh and bones, body organs. We see that he ate food, Luke 24, verses 41 to 43, to give evidence that he was not a spirit, but was actually a physical uh, person. He ate food, something that a spirit would not do. He could be touched, and he could show even the marks of the atonement that were upon his body, John 20, verses 26 to 29. So we can look at those and say those characteristics are a blueprint for the kind of body that we will have in our glorified state. There are also other texts that we can look at that provide some additional information regarding this future glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter that contains the lengthiest exposition of the doctrine, contains some helpful words about what our bodies will be like in this glorified state. Four characteristics in particular are given in verses 42 to 44 of 1 Corinthians 15. First, Paul says that our bodies will be indestructible. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42, it is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. In other words, no more sickness, no more pain, no more decay, no more possibility of death. The body that we will possess in our glorified state will be indestructible. Number two, our bodies in the glorified state will be glorious. They will be glorious. Paul goes on to state in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in dishonor because from the moment of our conception, we bore the consequences of Adam's original sin. But our glorified bodies will not bear that. There will be in those glorified bodies no lust for sin, no desire for sin. Temptation could have no possible influence on our glorified bodies. Our bodies will not be used for any dishonorable use, but rather they will be attractive. They will be radiant. They will be perfect. As Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, they will shine. Number three, our bodies will be powerful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 43 says, It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Paul isn't saying here that we will gain omnipotence, the ability to do all things, but rather what Paul is describing is that we will no longer face the frustration that we currently face at the limitations we have in fulfilling our God-ordained roles. Undoubtedly, you face that We all face that on an hourly basis, limitations, weakness. But the body that we will receive will be a powerful body that will be efficacious, 
in fulfilling God's purposes for us in the new creation. We will never experience frustration of not being able to do what we are tasked to do. And number four, our bodies will be spiritual. Our bodies will be spiritual. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 43 that it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. Now, some have mistaken that to suggest that this body that we have is actually not a physical body, but it's just a immaterial body. It's just figurative language. But it's important to understand the distinction that Paul makes here between these adjectives natural and spiritual. When he says that it is sown a natural body, he is referring to the fact that this word for natural relates to things that pertain to the vain things of this world, the decaying things of this world, the things that are under the curse. That is the natural body. It is a body that is insensitive to the things of God. The word spiritual, on the other hand, can be defined as that which pertains to the things of the spirit. In other words, this glorified body, our bodies raised in glory will be spiritual in the sense that even in this material physical state, they will be fully attuned to the Holy Spirit. Those bodies will know and will understand and will walk exactly according to the Holy Spirit as we are commanded to do in Galatians chapter 5, but with perfection. Wayne Grudem summarizes this when he says this, quote, our resurrection bodies will show the fulfillment of God's perfect wisdom in creating us as human beings who are the pinnacle of his creation and the appropriate bearers of his likeness and image. In these resurrection bodies, we will clearly see humanity as God has intended it to be. Therefore, when we talk about our resurrection bodies, we can say that there is both continuity and discontinuity. When we look at the resurrection body of Jesus and we look at the other teaching of Scripture that addresses our glorified state specifically, we can come up with this idea, this understanding that that our future glorified bodies will have both continuity and discontinuity. They will have continuity and that our future glorified bodies will still have unique resemblance to show identity. We'll not all be cookie cutters. We'll not all look the same. We will have unique resemblance just as the body of Jesus did. We will have consistent physical features, features that that we have even now consistent with our current bodies. We will have flesh and bone We will have physical senses. We will even have the ability to eat. But our glorified bodies also will show discontinuity. Discontinuity with our current bodies. In that our glorified bodies will be indestructible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. I like what MacArthur and Mayhew state when they they describe it this way. God will not replace your current body. He will renovate it. And what it means is this, whatever is unique to you and to your physical appearance now will be perfected. 
in the body that God gives you, whatever features are unique to who you are, to how God has wonderfully created you to be. His intent will be that you bear those unique characteristics in their perfection. And every single one of those characteristics of your future body will beautifully and perfectly radiate the glory of Jesus Christ. Any physical trauma that you may have had, any current, any current disabilities that you now may experience, all those things will, will be used to radiate glory. Radiate glory. Number four. Another essential characteristic of our, of this doctrine of, of resurrection is this. Our experience of a res, of future resurrection will be a corporate one. Our experience of resurrection will be a corporate one. This is very interesting to consider. Often we don't think of it in this term, in these terms. Until this point in our experience, until the point of future resurrection, our experience in salvation is very individual in nature. I'm, I was regenerated according to God's own timing for me. And I was adopted at that moment. I was justified. God gave me the gift of faith and repentance. And he then, even now throughout my Christian life, he sanctifies me as he works within me to do his good will in his own unique ways, in a way that is very individual to me. But when we talk about future resurrection, when we talk about the receipt of our glorified bodies, this is a component of salvation that will be corporate. We will share this experience with God's people. Now, indeed, the Bible does testify to various stages of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 26. 1 Thessalonians 4 and the book of Revelation. We we can read that there'll be various stages of the resurrection of God's people. Old Testament saints at one time, church age believers at another time, and so on and so forth. But our our presence, our identity with God's church age, that, that identity will mean that we will all receive our glorified bodies together as a corporate experience. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 17, when he says this, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that is those who have been in that intermediate state. Jesus will bring them back in their souls. He'll bring them back as he comes, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul continues, For this we say to you by way of the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, those who have been in that intermediate state, they will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up 
together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. What Paul is referring to there is that this component of of redemption is a corporate one. When we receive our glorified bodies, it will all take place together with one another. Number five, very quickly, our awards will be conferred only once we are in our fully glorified state. Our awards, our spiritual awards will be conferred only once we are in this fully glorified state. Now, the New Testament writers draw this distinction between the gift of eternal life and the rewards for good works. These are two different things. We could look, for example, at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where verse 5, Paul talks about that we are not to go on passing judgment before the time, but to wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after Paul has given this lengthy exposition of the doctrine of resurrection, then he encourages the Corinthians with these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, your toil will be rewarded and that reward will come upon your resurrection. Paul speaks of the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10, that Christ will recompense each one for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the deeds that we have done in this life, in our bodies, will receive the appropriate awards in the next life in our bodies. And that will come at what the New Testament writers describe as the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. That Bema seat is the place where in the, in the ancient Greek world, that was the place where the judge would render his verdict, would give his decisions, and would reward athletes. You can look at Acts chapter 18, where Paul is brought before the Bema in Corinth to receive a judgment from the proconsul Gallio. And the victor, in terms of athletic competitions, any victor in those competitions would be brought to this raised platform and there at the platform receive the prize for his his victory. And that is what we will receive upon our resurrection as well. That once we are in our glorified bodies, there will be a judgment, not a forensic judgment, not a penalty for sin or a payment for sin, but there will be a judgment in terms of an assessment, an assessment of the works that we have done as believers in this life, the works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And there will be an evaluation. And in response to that evaluation, we will receive rewards in our glorified bodies that are consistent with the works that we have done in this life. What a motivation for pure and holy living. Number six, the promise of the resurrection soothes our present experiences of suffering. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, he says, This momentary light affliction 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. First Peter 4 verse 13 communicates a similar idea. And it is this, when we understand that this life is not the only life in which we will have our bodies, but there is coming a time when we will experience perfection in our glorified bodies. It gives us the perspective to see that the afflictions that we face today are in comparison, momentary, and light in comparison to the glories that are to be ours in that future state. And finally, the final glorification of the believer puts God's glory on greatest display. It has been God's plan from the very beginning to create a brotherhood around his son, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, it has been his purpose that he would take those whom he foreknew to conform them to the image of his son. And when that happens in its finality, it will put God's power, his wisdom, and his love on greatest display. I like what Anthony Hokema states when he writes this, nothing in all of history will reveal the fullness of God's perfections as brilliantly as will the completed glorification of his people. At that moment when we are finally glorified, it is not that we will revel in our own glory. It is that God's glory will be put on greatest display. And our infatuation will not be with the glory that we are now clothed with, but it will be with the glory of the one whom we reflect. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew state it this way, quote, because glorification is the consummation of sanctification in which believers are perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, glorification especially magnifies Christ as the preeminent source of the beauty of holiness that is reflected in his perfect brethren. Again, our focus in this glorified state will not be on our glorious bodies as wonderful as that will be. Our focus will be on the one whose glory we reflect. There's a a wonderful hymn that is not sung very often. It is a hymn that is based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish pastor who pastored in the 1600s. And in response to the letters that he wrote almost 200 years later, a lady by the name of Anne Ross Cousin composed this hymn. It is a beautiful hymn that reflects all that we've talked about both in the entire series as well as in our final session tonight. Now this hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, or sometimes also known as Emmanuel's Land, this hymn originally contained 19 stanzas. I'm not going to read all 19 stanzas, but I want to read a few of these stanzas. They're beautiful lyrics that express the desire of every true believer. 
It begins this way. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, those seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. Its streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There too an ocean fullness, his mirthy dust doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and always dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned when throned there where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Soon shall the cup of glory wash down earth's bitterest woes. Soon shall the desert briar break into Eden's rose. The curse shall change to blessing. The name on earth that's banned be graven on the white stone in Emmanuel's land. Oh, I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not in where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I shall sleep sound in Jesus, filled with his likeness rise, to live and to adore him, to see him with these eyes. Between me and resurrection, but paradise doth stand, then then for glory dwelling in Emmanuel's land. And then this final stanza, which I trust represents your own heart's Desire. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen.